pioneering MMA before there was MMA. So it is a, a Australia really were leaders and realistically unrecognised leaders of the sport. Five Eighters, how are you all? Welcome to episode 90 of the Five Eight Take. If you're listening to us on Spotify, you're now able to rate us five stars. So please go ahead and do that. Today we have a very special guest by the name of Elvis Sinosik. Elvis is Australian combat sports royalty. He is a fourth degree black belt. He's the owner of King's Academy and UFC Gym MacArthur Square and is the national grader for the UFC gym. He was the first Australian to compete in the UFC back at UFC 30. He was the first to execute a heel hook at the inaugural ADCC. He was also the first to use a go-go plata submission in MMA. Along with many more achievements, he has now thrown his hat into the political ring as the candidate for Blacksland under the UAP at the next election. Something we break down later in the episode. We begin by discussing the history of how Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and MMA got started in Australia. We then follow on to a deeper analysis of why Elvis decided to fight, what drove him, and how he controlled his nerves. There is so much amazing conversation to get through in this episode, but if you like MMA, BJJ, understanding how to control nerves, time management, the history of combat sports, then this episode is definitely for you. Without further ado, Elvis Sinosik. You can hear yourself all good? Uh, yep, you can hear yeah. you, can hear me, all good. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Um, yeah, the other the other day, um, Bruno Pano came through the academy uh, at Gracie Otama. So we had a chance to train with him and it was, it was just really cool, just just the stories of um, how jiu-jitsu developed uh, in Australia. And you're a great person to ask because you were there. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah I was uh, there for um, a large part of it. Um, I'm sure those who are, uh, know who I am, would be aware I'm an, a pioneer of Australian Jiu-Jitsu and MMA yeah. here. So it was a long time ago, but uh, it's still like fresh in my memory because I'm, I'm very passionate about uh, Jiu-Jitsu and MMA. So it's it stuck with me for years. I, I started a little bit after the sport had come into the country. I'd heard about the sport through a magazine called Blitz, right. which was owned by uh, John Will at the time. So he was using that magazine to kind of travel around the world and experienced different martial arts. Mm. So he'd gone to um, the Philippines, competed in uh, Salat World Championships. I believe he won the Salat World Championship for his weight. He ended up going to the wrestling pits of India over there, and he was just doing different martial arts. And then uh, uh, a Brazilian came over named Pedro. He put out a challenge, the old Gracie-style challenge, $50,000, put it up, winner takes all. So John Will... It's like, well, you know what? Hey, we interrupt that story 
and we'll get back to it in a minute to let you guys know that this episode is powered by LoanOptions.ai. LoanOptions.ai is Australia's first artificial intelligent loan marketplace for personal business and car loans. Their AI tool will see you matched with the right lenders in minutes. And more importantly, they don't just palm you off like Scott Morrison has done during these floods. They'll actually walk alongside you and make sure that the loan you want gets facilitated. With over 255 star reviews, there's a reason why people choose to go with loan options and why we back them. They back us. They're good people. We definitely recommend you choose loanoptions.ai. So go to loanoptions.ai slash 58. That's loanoptions.ai slash F-I-V-E, the number eight, and secure your loan today. Now, let's get back to the episode. I'm keen. This is interesting. I might have to look into it. So instead of just diving in, he's the sort of person that will go out and do a bit of research. So he traveled to Brazil to to kind of find out what this uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu was and who this guy was. And he ended up going to Gracie Baja. He trained there for a while. And while training there, he met the the Machado brothers. But he learned very quickly that it was not going to be a wise challenge to take up. Like he put, in, put up 50,000, he puts up 50,000 and winner takes all. And he's like, okay, got slapped around by, I think he said a 16-year-old or something. Um, and he learned very quickly that this was something he wanted to learn. So mm. he then brought back jiu-jitsu to Australia, um, started teaching it at his academy and uh, the students there were like, wow, this is fantastic. So he then took another trip over and brought some of his students with him to Gracie Baja, Mm. um, one of them being Peter Debean, who eventually opened and ran the AFBJJ. They kind of kept moving forward. Um, So John was, is one of what's known as the Dirty Dozen, one of the first Mm -hmm. 12 non-Brazilian black belts in the world. So that's pretty cool. So he'd been doing that for quite a few years. Um, when I discovered it, so I, I was reading his article. So he'd, he'd kind of been doing it, started reading the articles and I'm like, wow, this is really cool. And then I'm just trying to think, uh, one of my my first job that I got coming outside of uni, I worked for what was then ADAB that became AusAid. It's a government department. And there was an old friend of mine who I knew at high school, but had kind of lost touch with uh, at college and then into university. Yeah. And he was there and he brings me this VHS tape. I'm not sure if um, all the listeners know what that is. It's a rectangular (laughs) tape that you put in this box that uh, does the job of a DVD. Time with technology is moving so fast. And I think we skipped the the small disc. I think at one stage there was a little late. Yeah, they kind of ditched. I mean, you tell people about the uh, VHS beta battles and it's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Um, But anyway, so he gave me the tape of UFC 2 and I'm like, holy, this is awesome. Like, I I, want to try this and – um, and then obviously with the, the John Will article, so I started looking for a place to train. I found a place in Sydney. You um, weren't training it? I'd started doing martial – no, I'd, I'd been training martial arts up until 
I went to university and then I stopped. Yeah. During yeah. university, I took up be- uh, volleyball and eventually got into beach volleyball, became a pro beach volleyball player. So I was traveling up to Sydney to compete in uh, pro beach volleyball. Oh, amazing. And then um, I met a girl and then found a reason to move up to Sydney. And that's where I discovered Anthony Lange, um, who was under John Will mm. um, as part of my journey. But while I was in Canberra, I started looking for anywhere that might teach jiu-jitsu. And the closest I found was a, a Jun fan school, which is the – pre-Jeet Kune Do, Bruce Lee style. So they did um, Kali stick work, stick and knife work. Mm-hmm. They did Muay Thai for your striking and and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but again, very simple jiu-jitsu mm-hmm. kind of to incorporate the, the three elements of, you know, striking, grappling and weapons, which was the kind of uh, Jun Fan, Jeet Kune Do way uh, back in the day. So I'm like, oh, this, I'm getting some grappling um, started um, competing again because again, as a younger kid, I'd competed in judo a lot mm. and gave up judo for taekwondo because I wanted to be like Bruce Lee. So I wanted to be able to do jumping kicks and all the fancy stuff and then stop that going into uni. Well, anyway, so I decided I wanted to give this a go, ended up moving to Sydney, found Anthony Lange and started training uh, with him. Competed in my first tournament after two weeks of training and I, I got bronze. I got bronze in it somehow because um, I really, I mean, I, I used the judo I knew, but obviously didn't have a great understanding of uh, jiu-jitsu. Um, I, I lost, I think, my match into the finals, my semis to a judo black belt who was competing in it. And I think he ended up losing to a jiu-jitsu blue belt at the time or something right. like that. Yeah. But there was this... Um, uh, fo- oh no, sorry. I lost the bronze medal match. That's right. Um, and I lost it to a wrestler and there was this photo of me. Um, someone took of me pinned underneath the wrestler and like, like I'd done judo for years and I knew how to stay safe, but hadn't really worked escapes and uh, to the same degrees we kind of have in jujitsu because yeah. you're used to referee um, stoppages if you can kind of get out and things like that. And that kind of sat on my bedside for 12 months or over 12 months until I got, managed to get a, a rematch and and beat him. Oh, so you held onto the picture. I, I put it, I literally put it on my bedside and I, <laughs> I love that. And said, I'm not getting rid of it until I beat him. That's Which was crazy. crazy because it was like my first ever comp. I, I shouldn't have been in jiu-jitsu <laughs> grappling, but I was just driven. Like I, I really enjoyed the sport. I, I just wanted to get better and – like I even had losses after that, but that one was the one I had to get back. And thankfully I did, you know, 12 months uh, later, I did a special match and I think in a boxing ring for Father Dave, um, who we'll yeah. probably have a chat about a bit later on as we move in. Yeah. Um, he does a, a fantastic job helping the community, um, street kids and things like that. So he used to run events to raise money for it. So competed yeah. in that one. Well, anyway, kept training and uh did it for a few years. I uh, ended up fighting MMA um, overseas and in Australia, the first ever Australian event in uh, 1990, March, March 4th, I think it was, uh, or no, March 22, 1997. Uh, Is that Cage Combat? Yeah. So it was the called the Australasian UFC when they advertised for it. Yeah. Um, and the promoter was an American who'd come over here. But yep. then he was – Legal action was taken from the actual e- UFC. So when you released the uh, VHS, it got rebranded to, to Cage Combat. Mm-hmm. So I, I fought in that and I did a couple of other events. And um, several years later, 
I think around the 2000s, that's when uh, you're talking about the the original Brazilian black belts, they came over. So um, they were the first Brazilian um, black belt, Paulo, Bruno, Marcelo. Yeah. And we'd already had an association, the, uh, the New South Wales Submission Grappling Association, where we we're running competitions and things like that. Um, but it wasn't officially jiu-jitsu. We we're doing jiu-jitsu rules and stuff and the, the Brazilians came over um, they set up the New South Wales uh, Federation and that's kind of where the sport then continued to grow. We ended up working with them. Um, How was that initial like entry? So it was, I guess, initially, um, you know, the challenge occurred, the 50,000, as you mentioned. And well, then I guess- well, no, Interestingly, no one took it up. Um, the challenge was made. No one ended up took it, taking why it up. Do you, why do you think that is? 50 um, grand is a lot of cash. Well, it's, I think it's the, you've got to put up the 52. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, even if you are confident, not everyone's going to have 50 grand to put up. But it's interesting. It's interesting because we, like in Australia, we had martial arts and then this, this yeah, Brazilian but, comes in and he's, and I, I, I understand that they, they went and definitely look, a good idea I, for no one to take I, that I, up. I, I don't even if know <laughs> if anyone in the US took that up because I think that that challenge went across it. I just don't think it's a cultural thing. Yeah. Um, you know, fighting for money in that kind of way, if it's not an event, mm. kind of, I don't think the Australian, it's just the sort of thing an Australian fighter would do. If there was a big event, maybe they would enter and, well, interestingly enough, the first um, Australasian UFC event, which became Cage Combat that I competed in, yeah. um, when I heard about it, I'm like, I want to enter. And so I emailed the promoter. I'm like, I want to, I want to do it. And he's like, look, you know, you've got some, so I hadn't really won an event or anything like that at that point. I've entered competitions. I had bronzes and silvers and I may have had a gold in there as well, um, but not really. I'm, I wasn't a, a well-known credentialed fighter. I'd won some national all-styles point fighting and continuous fighting competitions and then my medals when I was a kid in judo. But I, I was essentially a nobody even in the martial arts community. And He's like, look, we've got all these professional fighters. We've got kickboxers and wrestlers and different people coming in to do the sport. And I literally called him every day to see how's it going? Has anyone dropped out? And, um, and what slowly happened is a lot of these fighters started looking into what this cage fighting was, this UFC, and they just all slowly started dropping out one by one. <laughs> Until literally two weeks before the event, I'm called him up. I'm like, how's it going? Have you got, have you got enough fighters? And he's like, Oh, no, I, I called him up that day and he's like, no, we, we've got enough fighters. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then later that afternoon, I get a call back and he's like, oh. They all dropped off. He goes, because <laughs> they actually contacted at, uh, another uh, Australian athlete named Neil Bodicott and they're like, oh, do you want the spot? And he's like, no, I want to stay in the alternate role. He would rather, because he thought it was an easier route. If you win the alternate match, uh -huh. then you have the opportunity yeah. to jump in at a later part in the tournament if right. someone gets injured because – Back in the day, it was tournament, so you had it was alter, an eight man tournament, eight man tournament yeah. with alternate match. Yeah. So, and he called me. He goes, "Oh, everyone's turned it down." I'm like, "Do you want it?" And I'm like, "I've been calling you every day for uh, for two months. Of course, I want it. <laughs> put me in." So, I got put in. And the funny thing is, is right before the event, the ultimate uh, the alternate match got canned because they only had one pair of alternates to fight and then um, Zane Fraser literally the day before was jogging on Bondi Beach and popped um, 
um, his Achilles tendon. It's just a random accident. And so, like, we need a spot. And he goes, they called Neil up and said, look, one of you two is going to get it, whoever takes it. And Neil's like, okay, I'll, I'll take it. And he ended up fighting in the tournament as well. So I ended up uh, fighting in that tournament, um, which was an amazing experience. And now, for me at the time, it was only ever meant to be one, one match. Or well, mm-hmm. not one, sorry, one event. Yeah. I'd been doing martial arts for years. I'd done, as I mentioned earlier, judo, taekwondo, um, had discovered Brazilian jiu-jitsu and was kind of playing with that and enjoying it. Uh, I think I was, uh, back then, I was a green belt, which was the equivalent of a four-stripe white belt. Mm-hmm. So John Will br- brought in the, the coloured belts that they used for the kids because at the time there was no stripe system for belts. It was just literally blue, purple, brown, back. And right. so what he did is he wanted to kind of incorporate more more steps to that blue belt because – we weren't uh, accustomed to waiting two years for your first reward sort of thing. It's yeah. what your blue belt's your first reward. Um, and so he saw that they had a, a junior belt system, so he used it for the adults. Right. And so he put the, the first four, what are now the first four stripes were, I think, yellow, orange, um, red and green, I think he used at the time, or something like that, like yeah, four yeah. belts before blue belt. So he started the stripe system. And then what he added on was now after the blue belt, you then got stripes on your belt. So if you were now blue belt, you got three stripes because it was three belts to black belt. Then when you got purple belt, there's only two stripes because you're two belts away. And then when you're right. brown belt, there was one stripe. So he he actually put um, this, this ranking system oh, – sorry, uh, grading system – in place long before the IBJJF ever incorporated it. We ended up changing, he ended up changing it to match it, so four stripes on each belt, but there was no stripe system or anything like that back in the day. It was just your belts. That's um, incredible. So that that's sort of, I never knew that. That's sort of where it's all like. Well, look, I, I don't think that necessarily where the IBJJF got the idea, but he was definitely yeah. one of the pioneers in doing it. And it was the same thing when he first started teaching jiu-jitsu he taught it with Muay Thai and with wrestling and he had a system called shoot fighting, yeah. which is today's MMA. So back then there was no MMA. There was no, hold barred, no holds barred fighting, but that was style versus style. Mm. So he actually incorporated a system for integrating the different styles and everyone back in the day said, you know, you're an idiot, you shouldn't be doing it, you know, you're – you're mixing the styles, you're making it impure. And that, I think that was one of the reasons um, Peter DeBean separated because he just wanted to focus on jiu-jitsu. He wasn't interested in the striking or the wrestling. He just wanted to do jiu-jitsu. Mm. Um, but you kind of look back now and even though John main, only mainly focuses on jiu-jitsu nowadays, Machado Jiu-Jitsu is a Machado Academy, it is interesting that he was pioneering MMA before there was MMA. So it is a, a Australia really were leaders and realistically unrecognized leaders of the sport. Yeah. So you know we do we we have had that idea for for a long time. Did you always think you know whilst you were doing volleyball that you'd come back into fighting? Um, fighting was more. Um, for personal growth, you know, improving confidence, getting fit. I, I enjoyed it. I was competing. I've always uh, had a drive um, to compete and, and to excel. 
Like um, when I was younger in primary school, I, I played soccer, but I, I pretty much sucked at it. I'll, I'll be honest. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Um, and I played on the team. And because I wasn't good, I gave it up because I didn't want to do something that I, I couldn't really do well at. Mm. So um, I'm. you'll probably soon discover I'm obsessive compulsive. When I do things, I really di- dive deep. I don't take things by half. And I think I've kind of carried that on um, from when I was younger, but it's evolved a lot more as I've gotten older. Mm. So, yeah, no, I, I think I was always very competitive. Um, I believe in a positive way. It was never negative. It was never forced upon me. It was just something I always wanted to do. I just wanted to be better than I was. Mm. So, yeah, as I said, just kept driving through. John Will was fantastic. And um, even the, the first time... Uh, the Brazilians held a comp with uh, brown and black belts. I'm like, I was a brown belt at the time and I'm like, I've got to compete in it. So I'm like, I've is got- Is there any any bit of you that is like, like has that complete, because I see like I see a comp coming up and and I'm, I'm like, yeah, like I want to, I want to compete in it. But then there's, there's always that little voice in the back of my head, like, oh, like, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I should go in, but then I go in it and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it in the moment, but do you have that pre, like, I've, I don't I, know, or no, it's always I've, like. I've never had doubt about doing it. stuff. I think I was probably overmoded. I would dive in when I probably shouldn't have a lot of times. <laughs> right. um, I just love the challenge. Don't get me wrong. Like when I, like when I started fighting, there were, you know, lead up to fights, fight day, I'd get the, the butterflies, nerves. I'm like, and I'd think to myself, why am I doing this? What the hell have I done? Because of the nerves, you know, the pre-fight nerves. But then I used to sit there and go, you know, no, no, it's good. Nerves are good. It's just your body getting ready. Don't, yeah. don't let it get into your head and things like that. Um, it was never always a smooth journey, but it was always one that I was driven to do. So, but yeah, I ended up competing in that first comp and, and, I think there was, again, I had to win because it was kind of the Australian jiu-jitsu players versus the Brazilian jiu-jitsu players. Now, the two Australians, we were both um, brown belt. Sorry, there was a couple of us, but there was a couple of us which were, we were just brown belts. We hadn't got to to black belt. I don't think there was any Australian, uh, Australian, made black belts yet. So obviously John Will and Pete DeBean who had got it from overseas, but there yeah. had been none that had kind of got their belts and developed in Australia only. So we had the Brazilians come over. They were black belts and they were kind of competing. So it was almost a pride thing because, you know, there was rumours going around where, you know, some people were saying, oh, if you're not a Brazilian black belt or you're not Brazilian, you can't cheat, teach real jiu-jitsu. And obviously that gets back to us and we hear that and I'm like, jiu-jitsu is jiu-jitsu. It all yeah. comes down to who does it better. And so I, I was really motivated to win that one. And I did. I, I won every match uh, via submission, so which, which was pretty cool. And and I have to give credit to um, uh, Polo who competed in it. So he competed yeah. um, in it. And, I mean, he could have easily stood aside on his laurels and not competed. Um, he got in there and it was also Guga um, who's with Gracie uh, Baja. He competed and, and, and I give even more credit to him because he was like 65 kilos and I was 95. Mm. 
So, you know, and he still got in there. I mean, he won his first match so against the bigger opponent, so he was definitely very skilled, had great jiu-jitsu. Um, I was just equally as skilled and I was bigger and stronger as well. Like, I'm not going to say I was better. I believe I was, but I'm going to give him the credit. He had the skills to, to hang with me and I'm sure he would have been a lot more competitive if we'd been closer in size. So I ended winning that and that was a big feather in my cap. It was almost like um, it just validated what we were doing because that was yeah. a, a big thing. You know, a lot of people, sorry, not a lot of people, but some people saying that we're not as good and to be able to prove that we are. And even today, um, it really shows that we have some of the greatest grapplers uh, in the world, both in the gi and out of the gi coming out of Australia. Because one of the things that really irked me with the the, the the people that were saying you can't learn jiu-jitsu from a non-Brazilian that's not just going to be good is discrediting their own students who aren't Brazilian. Yeah, because if you make your own right, black belt right, right, right. and they're not Brazilian, you're saying you shouldn't learn jiu-jitsu from a non-Brazilian. You're discrediting what you're doing. Yeah. So, and, and that, as I said, that really irked me and, and that was part of what drove me to prove that jiu-jitsu is jiu-jitsu. Like, I know we have lots of, even today, Baja, Humata, Oceana, the Machados. And in the end, we're all learning jiu-jitsu. We're all just as passionate about it. And it's kind of funny how in your town, it's very secular and competitive. But as soon as you travel, it doesn't matter what academy you you belong to, uh, yeah. your family, because you do jiu-jitsu. And... I think that gets lost a little bit in the local community because they're so concerned about their own reputation. Mm. I don't want you training with them. I don't want you training over there. I don't want you doing this. Whereas I believe you can share and train because your students are going to remain loyal yeah. as long as you're doing jiu-jitsu and as long as you provide what they want and that's the skills and more importantly in the environment. Yeah. whether it's the competition environment, the social environment, or just somewhere where they can get away from it all. As long as you provide it, your students will remain loyal. You don't need to protect that. And I think back in the day they they were worried that they, they had to protect it. They had to prevent losing students. Where I was very early on, I'm like, I don't need to protect it. Mm. I just need to be the best at, at what I do. I feel jiu-jitsu is, is – a language itself. Like you can go anywhere in the world and you can just, you know, show it to a gym. E even if you don't speak their language, um, you can go for a role and, and you get an understanding, um, which is which is a beautiful thing. And those comps, what, what was the submissions that you ended up pulling? Uh, so the, the first one was um, uh, arm triangle. Back yep. then we call it head and arm choke. I picked it up from Mount. Yep. Uh, which was with Polo, and then in the final it was um, an armbar, and it was a, a what we we call clamp armbar, S mount armbar, yeah, yeah, um, from the mount. And again, you know, bigger guy, I was able to really uh, get it. And thankfully, you know, I'm not the sort of person to crank it. I'll, I'll put it on and hold, and and um, he respectfully taps. So that was that was really cool. But yeah, um, it's funny. I was known for triangles for a very long time because I was just really good at triangles. But yeah. I actually won most of my matches with – like all my um, MMA matches are arm bars. I, I love arm bars. I'm very good at um, arm bars. And even my triangles, I when they defend that, I transition into the arm bars off there. So 
it's just kind of interesting. The people that I train with, probably because in training, everyone knew I was good at armbar, so when they defended, I always got the triangle. So I got known for being good at triangles, but it was never because I was good at triangles or wanted triangles because I wanted the armbar and my my training partners knew I was good at armbar. So they're like defending that and that just gave me triangles. So it's kind of funny how that kind of um, evolves. Um, also, interestingly, um, as we're aware, leg locks, you know, heel yeah. hooks. I was about ashes. to get into the, the the development of, that was where I was going with that. The, how, your um, your thoughts and development of, of jiu-jitsu itself. Where, well, well yeah. one of the things I always really loved about jiu-jitsu compared to a lot of the um, other martial arts is that it constantly evolved. It doesn't, it doesn't stagnate. We don't do something just because my instructor showed me how to do it. We do it because it works. Mm. Um, and back in the day, as I said, um, we used to watch the, the, the events on VHS and there was um, a big community called the tape trading community. So these were people that were passionate about the sport because we had no internet, we had no YouTube, we had no Foxtel, um, we didn't have any access. Is this is this like the the like sort of like baseball trading cards or Pokemon trading cards that you trade VHS? Yes. So what we used to do is um, you would buy a VHS instructional. So you'd get something that you didn't think anyone had or there weren't many and then you would make copies of it. And then yeah. you would talk to people online through, you know, um, chat groups that were like um, mailing list groups or notice boards and you'd chat to people overseas and they'd go, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got this. Oh, I, I really want to see that event because I can't see UFC over here. I'll send you this instructional if you send me a copy of the event. And they're like, yeah, cool. And so you tape trade. And then I'd yeah. find someone else and they've gone, oh, I've got this um, Pedro Sauer jiu-jitsu video and I'll go, oh, I've got this Sambo video. Are you interested in leg locks? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, I'll try. And then your collection grew and I literally, when I moved house um, out to where I live now, I literally had boxes of VHS tapes, which likely I couldn't use anymore because they would have deteriorated of tapes that I had spent years trading and they were old UFC events, Pride events, EFC events, and then instructional videos on Sambo uh, uh, Sambo and Jiu Jitsu and freestyle wrestling. But anyway, one of the things I, I picked up very early is I like leg locks because no one really knew them. So I'm like, mm. Mm, I'm gonna add this to my game. And it was very frowned upon yeah. by the Brazilian community. And even in my own gym. Why was it frowned upon? Um, I want to I, I I, get back to that like, thought, but I, why, why do you think at the time it was, it was so fr- – like it was pretty much, you know, everyone looked, you know, torso like, up. I'll be honest, it's probably because they weren't good at it. They didn't understand it. It wasn't part of it, um, but it was – the way they termed it was cheap. It's a cheap win. Right. Um, you only leg lock because you can't pass the guard. Um are you going to hurt someone? They're dangerous. So there was different reasons. And honestly, I just think it was because they weren't good at them. And I'm like, oh, no, I like them. These are good and I can pull them off. And like I even got a nickname for a little while called Leg, leg Humper. Are you humping my leg again? <laughs> and I'm like, you tapped, didn't you? What do I care? <laughs> and so, I mean, and again, this is one of the cool things about back in the day, which we don't really do today, is there was a lot of mat trash. 
Yeah. That we, we, <laughs> would, we would trash talk each other and make fun of each other and give each other nicknames or um, – but it was all good-natured. But because yeah. the communities were much smaller, you knew people a lot more. The classes were, you know, like a dozen people, things like that. They're like our 6 a.m. classes now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so there was a lot of trash and I got leg called leg, leg humper for a while <laughs> and, and I'm like, I don't care, I'm taking the leg home, so <laughs> – was there a lot of a lot of transitions and um, you know uh, like or has that game you've seen that look, develop look, a that, lot that, that, over time? Well, the, the funny thing is, I was working on my own transitions and I had different. I'd use some wrestling moves which I'd seen to roll, which like rollovers to roll into leg locks, and when someone legs locks me, I'd roll out into another leg lock. So I was, I was I was getting into it, and and it kind of kills me now because I could really be the father of leg locks. <laughs> um, but I, I pretty much stopped doing them because none of the comps allowed them. Mm, um, yeah. The only place I could use it was MMA. So I'd had the the MMA fight back in '97, and I had another one in '98, and then I tried to get fights overseas. There was nothing else happening in Australia. I had another event lined up for Queensland, which was the same cage combat. I was actually supposed to fight um, Tom Erickson, who's a 300-pound wrestler, <laughs> MMA guy. And I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. So I'd signed, I'd signed to fight it and everything. I love the mentality. I love it. Um, and I ended up it ended up being – the event got canned and, I mean, thankfully for my health probably. Um <laughs> But, yeah, so there was no MMA events happening and so I was doing leg locks and I just couldn't use them. So I pretty much just stopped doing leg locks and uh, because I had come from a judo background, I'd always played on top. Mm-hmm. So I was mainly the passing guard because no one could t- take me down in the in the gym. And um, and then one day I was kind of thinking, because I'd watch a UFC, I'm like, well, what happens if I come up against a wrestler? I'm like, well, what, what am I going to do on my back? So I started playing guard. And dear God, was I horrible at it. <laughs> it was just because I didn't need to use it. And so I started playing the guard game and I got really good and I actually started enjoying the guard game more. Mm. Um, and I got known for my guard game, but I still have a very strong top game because that's what I, I started with um, developing. And thankfully uh, with my leg locks, I was quite, um, as I said, good at it. And I actually got to compete in the first ever, the inaugural ADCC World Championships in 1998. So they, they'd um, they announced the event and they asked for um, nominations. And obviously I've contacted them, nominated, and they go, no, 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 we've got, you know, world champions. And like I'd had an MMA fight, so I'd had a bit of a, a reputation. I wasn't just, you know, I'm a, yeah. sorry, no holds barred fighter. That's better than MMA, you know. <laughs> yeah. there are no holds barred. <laughs> but they'd invited a lot of like jiu-jitsu world champions and judo world champions and wrestlers and they're like, oh, no, we've got a, a lot of big names coming. Same thing happened again. One by one they dropped out and then one day they're like, hey, We've got a spot for you. And I'm like, sign me up, send me over. And, and thankfully it was the Sheik, so it didn't cost you anything. They flew you over, looked after you. That was yeah. absolutely amazing experience. But I got to compete um, at the World Championships and I won my first match by heel hook. Right. And I am the first person in ADCC history to win a match with a heel hook submissions. So I'm technically the father of, of – um, Wait. <laughs> Submission, um, heel, uh, leg entanglements in um, submission wrestling. I did not know that. Yeah. Really? So, so there, there were other 
So when I went over there, I actually got to meet um, like Oleg Takdarov, who's a Sambo guy. Yeah. They obviously do yeah. leg locks. I met some other guys who did leg locks and we traded ideas and stuff, but I pulled it off. I'm the one that got that, the first yeah. heel hook submission. Um, In ADCC. ADCC. And thankfully I've got the video clip of it. I, I don't even know how I record it because it's terrible grainy quality, but I've got it. Oh, you got to send me that. I, um, I need to see that. Yeah. So, um, so that was – Pretty cool, and again, and that's what kind of kind of upsets me. I was even looking at um, when I fought Frank Shamrock in K one. He was yeah. known. He came from Pancras. He was known for his leg locks. I almost heel hooked him and knee barred him, and I was using outside ashy, which was unheard of. Like, I think the original one I used a um, what we would now refer to as a cross ashy. I think almost a saddle position. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the, I was literally just a couple of days ago looking at some photos from, um, someone someone brought something up on Twitter. They go, oh, and you fought Frank Shamrock. I'm like, oh yeah, cool. I'm going to send them a couple of photos from it. So I, I go back through my uh, Facebook albums, which go, you know, 20 years deep or whatever it is. And I found the photos from the um, that K1 match where I fought Frank Chaperon in MMA and I'm like, oh, that's right. I had him mounted in that match. Oh, I had the – oh, I'm playing outside Ash. Obviously it wasn't outside Ash. It was just one of the positions I developed um, but just had a name. And that was the one thing I think I, I wish I'd learnt from Eddie Bravo is naming positions because it might be known as the you Elvis read my mind before. <laughs> I was thinking, I was thinking Eddie just before because he had an, an issue about even yeah. naming positions, right? Yeah. And well, and he he didn't have the issue. The Brazilian community had the issue because he was yeah. naming stuff that was similar to what they were doing but different. And it's like, well, no, you can't call it that. It's, this is what it is. And yeah, but he just did it for his own guys. And obviously, it it kind of gained uh, that popularity. And he actually came out and did a seminar at our gym when he was a brown belt before he even. Um, oh, really? Yeah, before he even got famous, he showed us. Um, his, his lockdown stuff and I, I think a little bit of rubber guard and things like that. So we, we got exposed to it early. But, yeah, I just thought it was funny that when I look back and I'm like, I forgot about those leg locks in that MMA match. I almost got – because Frank went for the leg locks thinking I was clueless because I hadn't – obviously he hadn't seen the ADCC stuff or anything because no internet, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> um, or sorry, they had an internet, no YouTube or, yeah, yeah. or Instagram or anywhere where you could have those videos floating around. And almost, uh, almost submitted him with it. And like, I've got a great photo of a knee bar, and he's like literally just trying to escape out of the um, uh, the position. He ended up winning the the fight um, because of um, positional dominance. Like he, yeah, yeah. He, he did better, and um, but I think I, I got closer to actually finishing, finishing. the match. Yeah. Um, the big issue for me was again, it was one of the fights I took on. I think this one was ten days notice. Um, so I wasn't really prepping, wasn't in fight shape. Um, and it's kind of funny in, in the third round, um, at the end of the third round, I've gone to my coach, I go, I can't do this anymore. I'm just too tired. I haven't got it anywhere. I've got, I haven't got it in me. And he's like, what are you talking about? Shut up. <laughs> he goes, have your drink. This is what you did. Go out there and beat him. And that was the round that I almost beat him with the submissions. Um, and then the fifth round I was wrecked. Like I, I was keeping up, but I was just surviving and he ended up winning uh, the match by decision. I have no idea what the – because it was a five-round match. Yeah, 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 I have no idea how they scored it or where they scored it because obviously K1, where they scored it as a whole, where they scored it round by round, I really don't remember. But mm. it's it's also what got me into um, 
the UFC. Yeah, which I want to I want to get to like fighting like legends like that. You know, there's Shamrock, um, one of the Shamrock brothers, and um, Tito um, as Tito, well. Bisping, you know, Bisping, um, Forrest Griffin. Yeah, Forrest, who's yeah, and then, an absolute. Yeah, all of them are really like absolute. Hanato Babalu, um, Sabral again. Yeah, more old school guys would know Jeremy Horn, and um, obviously Evan Tanner, who had that um, very. Um, Interesting death, um, walking out into the desert and yeah. not coming back. And then, um, so yeah, I got to face a lot of the big, na- again, and that was back in the time where uh, to fly me over wasn't financially viable to stick me on an undercard. So they, they're like, well, you're going to get these fights. And I'm like, well, they're the fights I want. I don't want to fa- <laughs> fight, face the best guys because I want to see how good I really am. I don't want, I don't want the easy fights. Yeah. Again, not good for a career or your record. But, how, yeah, but it still, was fun you, and it's something I'll always, always remember. Yeah. So. And from the Eddie Bravo um, coming over, is that where you got the go-go plata? Like you're oh, no, I saw I, I'd, somewhere I'd, where you uh, I'd already, did one no, of no, the no. first go-go platas submissions. So, so what? what's the submission I'm best at? What was I telling you earlier? Armbar. Armbar. So I actually had – I went for an armbar and when they defended, I, I did a, a move where I – dropped my shin over the front and came in and then grabbed the head and we referred to it as a shin I oh, sorry I referred to it as a shin choke but it was a a counter off an armbar setup right and gotcha. so it later on became known as the gogo and obviously the the it, it came off it used to come off omoplatas and things like yeah, that and there were yeah. different setups but mine was off an armbar and I actually did it um in um 19 98 when I fought in rings against Kiyoshi Tamura, who was the the number one guy for rings. So I got brought in to lose to him. Um, and again, two weeks notice, short notice. And um, it was a 30-minute match, not not rounds. It was a 30-minute match. That's it. <laughs> and like I, I wasn't fit for it. I just went, I don't care. And I ended up losing at the 10-minute mark. I, I'm pretty happy that I did 10 minutes. Um, and I had him um, a couple of times. I almost had him leg locked because, I mean, they're very good at leg locks. Um, and I had counters and he went for a leg lock and I did a, a move I call a cross ankle lock and I think it's called a shoelace lock or ne- something now from the 50-50 okay. position. Um, and I should have had the match won, but when I did this submission, at the time it didn't register. He was We were wearing shin pads. So it's a cross ankle where ankles cross and then you come underneath and you crank and I push one ankle into uh, one ankle or my um, shin into the ankle and it, it can break an ankle. But with the shin pads in place, yeah. it, it stopped it from being being able to break. Like it was painful and uncomfortable, but I wouldn't be able to break mm. the ankle. And so he then ended up uh, heel hooking me on my leg as it was came across. He ended up dragging it across, picking it up. And because I had rope escapes, I was able to kind of get out and the match kept going. But because he actually popped a um, ligament or tendon, I ended up switching stance. So I went from orthodox, which I was, to southpaw for the rest of the match. Um, and then when Frank watched it, he thought I was a southpaw. So he came in unprepared for our fight <laughs> when we because, again, not much footage out there sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, in that, at the start of that match, I got the um, – uh, the uh, Goga Plata on him, uh, again, it was off a, uh, a guard pass into an armbar. He defended the armbar. I switched into the chin, chin choke and he ended up 
uh, doing a rope escape. I think it's if he touched the rope, mm. then I think he reached with his foot, then they stopped the match and restarted. So he did the first rope escape. So had it been win by submission, I would have won the match. But yeah. obviously with your rope escapes, then he got me. I ended up rope escaping. The match kept going, um, but my knee just kind of got worse and worse during the fight. Um, and then I'm not even sure how it got to the ground. He ended up catching me, uh, I think, in an armbar. It may have even just been a straight arm, a cross armbar from side control or something like that. And I think it was more exhaustion at the time um, than anything. But, yeah, so that's where I did the yeah. first ever Gogo Plater um, in MMA. And, again, it was just a shin choke. And um, I used to try – was it because we didn't have – black belts around, you know, my coach, Anthony Lange, was always just one belt ahead of me. I think he was a blue belt when I was fighting. I think John Will at the time when I started was a purple belt. Um, we had to use the VHS tapes. We had to um, develop our own stuff. We had to make our own games. And then, then that's why I was, you know, developing the leg lock game, then the arm, gar, arm bar game. And um, I come from an IT background, so most people might not know this, but I've got a degree in IT. I worked for 10 years in the industry. I've worked for companies like oh, Microsoft, right. Qantas, um, Colonial Bank, PwC, Coopers and Lybrand. Oh, um, right. So some of the, the, the biggest companies as well as um, government departments, even the Commonwealth DPP and things like that, doing IT. So I had a very always had a very structured analytical approach. So I always applied that to my – uh, Jiu-Jitsu, I always wanted to have systems. So I always used to put systems and create systems in place so it wasn't just relying on a single move. And the great thing was my coach, Anthony Lange, was much more philosophical. He goes, this is the idea of the position. You know, I want you to understand it and um, kind of become it. And yeah. so I took my analytical approach, his philosophical approach, and I kind of combined it to, to kind of develop my game that's kind of come out now, which is um, – very interesting because when I met Danaher years and years later, hosted him the first time he ever came to Australia. It was one of the first gyms to, to host him out here. Um, I, a lot of people have said he's very difficult to talk to, but I'd had experience with people that kind of had that kind of introverted thing and I, I got on with him very well and I discovered very early he had a similar approach but came from the other direction. So he came from more of a philosophical background and applied – um, a structured to it. So yeah. we kind of met in the in the middle coming from the opposite direction. So I always found that um, very interesting. We had some great chats um, about that. But oh, yeah, so both, both legends of the game and uh, yeah, it's it's um it's it's amazing how many firsts that you you have done for Australia and in general and and your tenacity to just go head first. Uh, you're going to say. I was going to say that it also reminds me because um, I'm sure people that are have heard of the Dead Orchard. So yes. It's kind of the the yep. triangle double armbar, which is what I did with um, Jeremy Horn. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because um, Danaher was telling me a story where he was teaching the move to someone. And one of the this tenth planet person came up and goes, "Oh, oh, you are studying ten planet jujitsu because you're teaching the dead orchard." And he goes, "No, I'm not. I'm teaching the dead Elvis." <laughs> and the guy goes, "What are you talking about?" And he goes, "Nathan Orchard didn't come up with the event. Elvis Sinisic did. He did it in the UFC back in UFC thirty because you know he's he's an encyclopedia and he knew it. He knew because obviously he comes from New Zealand. He'd been yeah. his mother was in Australia, so he was aware of. He goes." You need to go and um, learn your uh, 
your jujitsu and MMA history. And like the, the guy was a little bit shocked and ran off. And I'm, he told me the story and I'm like, cool. So I'm going to, whenever um, my students do, I go, you got to call it the dead Elvis. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And it so, brings us straight into UFC. Um, how, so how did that come about? How did you end up, um, I guess, signing with them and what it was back then to, you know, what it's grown into now is, is something amazing, but what it was back then, it was sort of, you know, a, a little unknown. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, thankfully it's the reason why pro wrestling is so popular is because there's a story behind it. Yeah. So there, there is a good story with this one. Uh, as I mentioned, I'd fought Frank Shamrock in the K1. I went the distance, I lost, but I almost beat him. And so, you know, that started getting around, oh, who's this Elvis guy and all this sort of stuff. I'd met Joe Silver, who was kind of working with um, the promoter of the UFC while it was, um, sorry, the matchmaker of the UFC when it was under SEG. Mm -hmm. So I'd met him on a mailing list called the Combat Mailing List and we'd been chatting and, um, you met him on a mailing list. On a mailing list. This is back in the day what? where you would- What? There, it was really hard. Like there were no forums or anything like that. There was like notice boards. And this was a mailing list where you would email into this particular email address and then it would go to out to everyone on the list. So you'd send the email in and everyone would get it. And if anyone replied, they'd go back to this and then it would go out to everyone. So you'd be literally, it's, it's almost like Twitter on email. It was crazy. <laughs> now, the, my problem always was is my time zone was different. So they had what was called a, a combat list digest. So at the end of the day, you got everything that everyone had discussed during the day. So I'd been at work, going through my combat list, finding, I'm like, oh, this is interesting, reply to it. And then my replies would go in and then they'd go out to everyone and no one would read them until the next day because most of the people were in the US. I was one of the few people. That, oh, and there was a few people in Canada and I also made a connection uh, in Canada. So ended up fighting in Canada for the UC, uh, UCC world title, which I, I rightfully should have right now. I'm, well, maybe I'll go into that story in a second. Um, and I, again, met the promoter on the on on the that mailing list. Anyway, so I'd met Joe, and then I had that fight with Frank, and then SEG was bought out by Zufa. Mm. So when they bought out, they got rid of the um, matchmaker because he was a bit controversial and he was difficult to work with. And so they brought uh, well, Joe Silver was already part of the company when they purchased it, and they moved him into the role because he was already working um, with him. Now, Joe is, a lot of people may not realize, was super passionate about MMA. He had a deep knowledge. He followed all the shooto. He followed um, the hook and shoot throughout the US, which was some of the events. He followed the pancreas and the rings. He knew everything about what was going on and was watching a lot of those events. So when he started matchmaking, he already had a very deep knowledge of MMA and the different promotions and the fighters out there. And as I said, met him on the, the, the mailing list. And so Jeremy Horn um, was supposed to fight uh, a Brazilian black belt called Cafe Dante. Now he was supposed to fight Jeremy and the winner was supposed to fight um, Tito Ortiz because there was, everyone had been talking for years about Jeremy. He'd fought some of the um, best guys in the world. He, he fought um, uh, Antonio Nogueira, went to a decision, didn't get submitted, fought um, Anderson Silva, I think, went to do a decision. I, I think he lost as well. 
But everyone knew it had something like 100 fights. So, you know, in the smaller promotion, been flying around, was a very big name, but everyone was like, he needs to fight Tito because he's grappling so good. Mm. And so they, they had this match, the number one contender match between him and, and Cafe Dante. And then uh, Dante ended up getting a staph infection and a massive hole in his leg and had to pull out. Two weeks before the fight, I get a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> and as you can imagine, I didn't turn it down. <laughs> Seems to be a red thread. Um, it is great. The, the funny thing is um, I got the call, phone call at like four o'clock in the morning. Hey, who's this? Joe? Joe who? Joe Silva. Oh, Joe, the mailing list. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> do you want to fight um, Jeremy Horn in the UFC? Yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. Oh, look, it's four o'clock. I'm going to go to sleep. Just message, send me an email. And went back, went back to sleep. Woke up the next morning, I mean. You think you dreamt it? Man, I had the best dream. I dreamt (laughs) that I got this fight in the UFC. And I I, I think I I, I called some of my friends. I'm like, I had the most surreal dream. It was like, it was like it was real. Like I got this fight and then I got into work, jumped on, going through my emails, checking the combat list. And I'm like, oh, Joe sent me a message. Oh, holy. (laughs) I am fighting in the UFC. And then I had to call up my coach. I'm like, oh, oh, hey coach. Um. I've got to fight in the UFC. He's like, oh, when is it? Two weeks. He's like, two weeks. He goes, it's not really a lot of time. I'm like, eh. He's like, all right. <laughs> he goes, do you really want to take, you want to take the risk? I'm like, because he knew I had the, the goal to get into there. And he's like, I'm like, yeah, no, no, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to do it. So obviously got it, went over there. Now, a very interesting story to the match is, again, no real internet, no YouTube, uh, Facebook, Instagram, any of that stuff. So there used to be this um, newspaper called Full Contact Fighter. Mm -hmm. So they would print it out and they would do basically what a news site would do is they would talk about upcoming matches. They would talk about previous match results. They would talk about training and just interviews of fighters and stuff. So we would get it, but it would always be a couple of months after it had been released. So we'd get them and it'd have um, predictions of the fights a month after the fight had already happened. But still, you know, we got this paper, so it was pretty cool, full contact fighter. So I'd I'd never seen it before a show. And I finally, I get to the US, I'm fighting in this show in um, uh, the Trump Taj Mahal. um, And someone goes, and I, I'm, someone's got, I'm like, oh, is that a full contact fighter? I go, I've never read one before a show. Do you mind? And he goes, yeah, you can have it. So the guy gave it to me. And in there they had predictions for the main event, co-main event and that sort of stuff. And um, I was the co-main with Tito fighting Evan Tanner. Mm. And, you know, even with Evan Tito, it was a bit of a back and forth. Some people said Tito wins, some would say Evan win. Some of the other fights it was kind of mixed and stuff. Mine? It was every single person that there was a combination of coaches and fighters and reporters had predicted that I would lose the match in under three minutes by submission. And I'm reading this <laughs> and, and some people may go, oh, that must be de- disheartening. I went, no, 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 no. My goal was to beat him in under three minutes by submission. <laughs> Two minutes, 59 seconds, I got the tap. What? So... Again, that's what I'm fate, talking about. Um, it's just who I am and I, I kind of – and again, I'm, I'm getting the tingles because I'm remembering what, like that feeling when I read it. I'm like, 
They underestimate me. I'm not going to let that get to me. I love that. Which brings up another interesting bit. When I, after I fought Frank in Japan, like before it, he was just like, wouldn't talk to me, wouldn't interact with me at all. I think he needs to separate that. And I'm like, oh, well, hey, Frank, I'm a big fan. <laughs> like, I'm going to fight him. I'm like, I didn't care. I'm like, I, I'm like, oh, I think you're awesome. That's cool. And, but he was like, but after the fight, he was super cool. He came up to me, he goes, oh, that was an awesome fight, blah, blah, blah. He goes, look, you know, what I do when I fight is I break people. He goes, I couldn't break you. He goes, that I, I just, I push them, I push them and I get in and I break them. He goes, I couldn't break you. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Really? That's nice. He goes, and he goes, I even did it to Jeremy. I just had to push, push, push until eventually I broke him. And he ended up beating Jeremy Horn by, I think back then it was like, they were 15 minute matches and the 11 minute mark, he got a knee bar on um, Jeremy Horn. And, and that's why he was known as a leg lock guy because of the pancreas. But he said to me, he goes, look, if they ever offer you a fight with Jeremy Horn, he goes, don't take it. And I'm like, why? He goes, Jeremy is one of the best guys out there, but he doesn't get the recognition. He doesn't get the respect he deserves. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, because he's got, because he fought so much, he had a lot of losses on his record, but it didn't reflect just how good he was yeah. and how well-rounded. He goes, if you beat him, nobody will care. If you lose to him, you'll have no no career. And I'm like, okay. And then when I got off the match, it, that crossed my mind. And I'm like, oh, I don't care. I'm going to take it. Oh, so you took it. Oh yeah, took it. And as I said, just th- one year out the other, out the other. <laughs> and that was again, that was the one. You know, he, they said he was going to submit me in under three minutes, and I got yeah. him at two minutes fifty nine seconds, with which is amazing. The dead Elvis. Hey. Um, but a, a really interesting. Uh, another interesting part to that match is nowadays I do the um, the finger point. So back in yeah. the day, fighters would hold a fist up when you did photo, fan photos or the Brazilian guys would do um, that. The, 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 um, I can't remember what you call it. The yeah. Brazilian we all, fist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Always do this. I yeah, don't yeah, know. Yeah. It's just embedded in I our DNA that we just do that's this. That's what doing. And, and, <laughs> and I never had my own thing, but I'm sitting there right at the end of the match, I've won. You have no idea. There's just so much excitement. I'm tingling. I'm excited. I'm just waiting for my hand to be raised. Like, this is what I've been waiting for. I finally got into the UFC. I've won. I'm so excited. And I just look down and there's this cameraman on his knees with his camera looking up at me. I look down the barrel of the camera. I kiss my finger and I point straight down the camera and just stare straight down the camera. And then they, then they put my hands up and call the match. And then the UFC saw that, like obviously it's their footage. And then after that, all their promo stuff that they used always finished with the finger point. So even when they launched their video game, they did this massive montage of slams and punches and kicks and knockouts and all sort of stuff. And then everyone getting their hand raised, all the different fighters. And then at the very end of it, the finger point. And then they did it for their ads um, when I was – fighting Tito, they did all this stuff and then the finger point. And so after that, I just went, that's mine. I'm taking that finger point. So <laughs> now when I do all the photos, it's the the number one finger point, um, again, which really uh, paid off long time. It was, I mean, it's good to have a little uh, call sign. And it, and again, I usually go, it's good to be the king. I love it. I love it. And, it, and King's Academy and um, – Talk about talk about one. I want to I want to come back to to MMA for a bit, but 
Earlier on, you mentioned that in university, you you were going uh, into a governmental sort of sort of role. Well, after university, once I graduated, yeah, you you wanted to go into a governmental role, or, no, or no, what no, was no, that? No, 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 just a, just a job. Like I just was looking for work. There wasn't a lot of IT work once I graduated. Yeah, government department had it. So as I said, that's where I started. Um, working for ADAB, which became rebranded as OzAid. That's my first job, um, but which also ties in. So my after my first year of, of uni, I was doing IT. So I was doing yeah. a basically information technology degree. And I did that because that um, – By the way, were you doing all of these fights and all of it whilst working in IT? Yes. Uh, my, my call sign was the world's toughest nerd for a little while. <laughs> Um, and when the UFC, like I was in the first ever video game and I actually made the manual as one of the main characters in there. And again, it's because the IT guys goes, he's one of us. And they even gave me a secret move that knocked everyone's power bar all the way, almost to the bottom. So, I love that. So yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. Cause you know, IT, their IT and we used to, yeah. like when I was doing, when I was chatting to them when they were developing the game and stuff because they had to do photos and measurements and ask what my moves were. So, yeah, they put in all this cool stuff because I did a couple of press things where the, the developers were there and they're like, yeah, we're, <laughs> that's my yeah, guy. My that's guy. my guy right there. But anyway, so while <laughs> I was doing my degree in IT, I, I got tw- 12 months into it. I'd done my first um, year and I did pretty well, a couple of distinctions, credits and pa- a couple of passes in there. And I kind of went, I don't know if I want to do this. Mm. I want to, I want to, I think I want to do coaching. And I, told, I sat down with my parents and I'm like, look, I think I want to change to a sports coaching degree. My parents are like, look, you've started it, finish it. Once you graduate, then you can do it afterwards. You can, you know, do a, a postgraduate degree or whatever it is that, um, you know, mature age student degree and you can do your coaching after, you know, finish your, IT, you know, you, when, when you commit, when you start something, you should finish it. And I'm like, mm. oh, no, that's fair. You know, that's who I am. I was finished. And so I ended up doing my degree in IT. And then the same thing, I didn't end up, once I finished uni, I'm like, I don't want to go back to uni. <laughs> <laughs> I hear um, you so there, I ended up working. <laughs> but even in that first job um, at, at ADAB, um, this company came up, uh, I think it was Acer at the time, and they had this software called Dragon Dictate. And they brought it to the, our, our um, department, because you know, with the IT department, they showed us how to use it because our goal was to integrate it into the rest of it. And it was more designed for people who have maybe, you know, RSI or injuries that they have difficulty typing. So it's a voice translation system into um, computer text. And so I learned it very quickly and I actually started understanding it better than the people that were bringing it to me. Mm-hmm. So Acer comes up to me and goes, oh, look, we'd like to get you to come to a couple of um, – uh, seminars, functions, that sort of stuff, and then help share it. And I'm like, um, teach it. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. And, and I started doing that and I'm like, oh, I really enjoy the this the education part of it. Mm. And they actually offered me a job and I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'll, I'll take it because, you know, it was more money and it was going from government into – because I was a contractor. I didn't have the security anyway in my government department. So this was another contracting role, more money. So I, 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 and I checked with my boss. I told my boss about what was going on because I would end up working with them anyway. And they said, yeah, yeah no, that's cool. Sadly, uh, I went bankrupt or something like that and they shut down for a while. So I, I didn't get the job. And so I ended up uh, going and working IT. As I said, spent 10 years in it. 
And what would you know is like 10 years later, I would quit the IT, open up um, the first full-time MMA gym um, in Sydney, ended up doing a diploma in sports coaching. So I got there, I just ended up going uh, the long way. Have you had a sort of passion for any governmental role before at all? Not, not at all. I was never into politics. I never really, it's just never interested me. It's just not what I, I, I like people. Yeah. I, um, obviously I love jujitsu because it's, it's a mental and physical challenge all in one. And it, and it challenged me in a way that I just wanted to keep doing it. And I've been doing it for 27 years now, um, a fourth degree Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Next year I get my fifth degree. Um, so I've been doing it for a, a very long time. I, I love it. I love the, the the teaching side of it. But a big part of what I love and, and my gym is really about is the community. I love the people. I love um, helping people like the amount of young kids I've seen come through who've turned around from being shy, bullied kids who've now built up their confidence, become world champion, junior world champions, become, um, you know, functioning adults in the community and you see people grow and, and even just the adults and the community we built. Like when I built my gym, I actually incorporated members areas. You don't make money of it. It was just about I like having the people around. So I've got a mezzanine level. We've got chairs so people can watch. We've got a mem- what, what we call a members mat. We run no classes on it. It's purely for any of the students who aren't doing the class or after their class, they want to train, roll, drill, whatever, stretch out. Um, we have a coffee area at the front, a nice coffee machine, a couple of chairs and tables. The staff are always making coffee for each other and sometimes the members and stuff. So it really is like, I know some people talk about community and family, but it's very big to me. I probably have the best family rates um, in Sydney, I have something like between 40 to 60% off if you've got a parent and then the kids for each child and stuff. Because I know how difficult it is um, for families sometimes, you know, jiu-jitsu is not a cheap sport. And I understand why. It's, it's If you're running a proper gym, it's very expensive. You've got this full-time centre, you've got employees. Uh, my, my staffing expense is like $30,000 a month. Mm. Um so it's not cheap and if you want to provide great quality of service and great stuff, the, the sport isn't going to be cheap. It's just the way it is. But if I can give more value, so, you know, I put a sauna in. So the, my students have access to a sauna. We do ice baths. I, I put it installed a small gym. I don't charge anything for this. We added, you know, hot yoga classes and, and different things that we can kind of, I can give back to my students as well. I even, I ended up purchasing a hyperbaric oxygen chamber um, again, this was because of my experience over in the US, seeing altitude training, some of the uh, advanced stuff these guys. And I actually got it initially for the fighters and competitors and then end, ended up going, um, not getting used a lot because my, oh yeah, you know, woo-woo, woo-woo stuff, you know, what am I going to get in the tube and fill it with pressure and oxygen and, you know, what's it going to do? Or as most fighters are, they're strapped. They haven't got a lot of money. Even when I discount it and stuff like that, they're like, oh, I don't want to spend that every week. I'd rather get food. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it wasn't just wasn't getting used a lot. Um, mm. So I started advertising it outside the gym, started getting um, cancer patients, autistic kids, things like that. Um, I even put out an offer because 
I wanted to help where I, if any child with cancer has it, they have free use of the oxygen chamber. Amazing. So I'm like, you know, I would like to give back to the community. And this is one of the things that early on disillusioned me towards corporations and government departments and things like that is I'm like, well, how do I get my message out? Like I'm not charging for it. I want nothing for it. Um, obviously I put some restrictions on. I can't give it to them every day, but, you know, you know, they come in once or twice a week. I'm not going to charge them for it. Mm. If they want to do more, then I'll do a discount rate because I've just got to make sure I have other people can use it and stuff. But I had this – I just like – I just wanted to help. So I contacted a couple of health – government health departments. I'm like, hey – you know, I've got this hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Um, if there are any kids, you know, can you put me in touch with anyone? Oh, no, we don't do that sort of stuff. And I'm like, look, I'm not charging for it. I'm not asking for you to promote me. I'm just like, pass it on. Is Who can, can even give me a list of contacts? He goes, mm. and they're like, no, we're not interested. He goes, contact some of the charities. I'm like, okay, well, fair enough. Charities will want to do this. They want to help contact the charities. No, we don't do this. Would you like to make a donation? I'm like... I'm offering free use. This is going to, this is not just money. This is going to help their treatments. It's no charge. I, I, no, we don't do that. We just take money, you know. I'm like, don't you run events? Can't you, have you got a newsletter? Can you pass it? Can you just let them know? No. And, and it wasn't just one. It was multiple ones. I contacted, um, I tried to find as many as, as I could and it's just nothing, no traction. No one was interested in, in helping I mean, that, that's what I, all I wanted to do and um, I, I get a little bit emotional about it because it is quite disappointing. Um, yeah, and that's kind of… Uh, 100% and especially when you're doing that and you're, you know, trying to help kids with cancer and you're, you're putting it all forward, it's, it doesn't make sense why well, no, people and wouldn't. And yeah, and it's you know? disheartening too. So, and again, that's why I had no interest in working for governments. As I said, I worked for 10 years… Uh, for governments and private um, industry, and I, it just wasn't the culture I liked. You know, mm. I, if I'd, I'd probably be making a mozza right now if I'd stayed in there um, and worked. I'd be somewhere up high, probably senior management up there somewhere, um, a director possibly in in, in an IT department, and, I, and I'd be well off. But I, I don't think I would have been happy, and, that, and that's yeah. why I just ditched it all. I just you know, when I had the opportunity, I just ditched it all, um, just went, dove straight in. And I, when we first opened up a full-time gym, I had no income for three months or something like that. And even then when we got an in income in, it was marginal. I, I built up massive debt. But I didn't care. I was, I was happy. I was doing stuff. And thankfully, um, I was able to pay it off, turn it all around, build – the, the business I have, uh, the empire as I call it now. <laughs> so I have my um, King's Academy gym, UFC yeah. gym. Um, and obviously I did the the stint uh, on Fox Sports where I was chief analyst on the, the Fight Week show. So I've got to do a lot of cool stuff. I've traveled the world. I've, I've done a lot of things that I probably never would have done if I hadn't got into yeah. jiu-jitsu or MMA and uh, the combat sports, and it's done wonders for me, and that's why I kind of keep going. And a big part of me of opening the UFC gym was I already had a super successful um, 
King's Academy. Academy. It's like doing great. Western Sydney, it's probably the go-to place. We have the biggest classes. We've got a massive um, academy, great reputation. A lot of people come just because someone told them about us. We've got great coaches. And as I said, the culture is good. I didn't need to open up a UFC gym. But, I mean, part of me did because – I was the first Australian UFC fighter, first yeah. Australian to fight for a world title. I fought in the first ever event in London in the Royal Albert Hall, which never had an MMA event after that again, which was pretty amazing. Um, first time they fought in Manchester. And so again, you know, I'd, I'd done a lot and I had a connection. I'd worked with Fox Sports doing the UFC show and I'd been to, I've been to every single um, UFC event in Australia since – they started coming and thankfully the UFC has all have always looked after me and uh, comp me tickets and stuff. And I've had some of the best tickets <laughs> um, the industry could kind of give. Um, and when the UFC gym franchise opened up, I wanted to be involved with it because obviously my history with the UFC, but more importantly, it brings jujitsu and the martial arts to the wider community. A lot yeah. of people when looking for fitness, might not consider the benefits of martial arts. Some parents might for kids, but, you know, it's martial arts. Sometimes going, oh, it's that (laughs) Bruce Lee stuff, you know, kung fu chops, judo chops, that sort of stuff. Whereas the UFC gym takes the fitness package, which everyone is familiar with. And brand awareness. Then creates a fitness class and then adds on martial arts fitness classes and the boxing and – I just wanted to be involved with that because it brings what has really turned my life around and many people I know through the martial arts to more people. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm involved with it. I'm not only have my own UFC gym, which I'm mortgaged to the gills on, um, <laughs> but I also am the head of the UFC Gyms Australia BJJ program. So I oversee right. um, it all. I do the gradings and, thing and oh, that no. sort of stuff. So, yeah. And if if – uh, for those listening that don't know, um, you know, like extremely um, high level to get to to get to your position, and I'm extremely glad you didn't stick down the IT path because inadvertently or, or the beach volleyball path that yeah. could have gone that way. <laughs> inadvertently, you've impacted a, a lot of people. Like um, one of you know the one of my comps was at your gym and, and I'll always remember that comp like for the rest of my life. So it's, it's impacted people that you don't even know you might not see on um, your day to day, but it, it, you know, reaches a quite a wide community and I have a lot of respect um, obviously for uh, people that do jujitsu in general and um, black belts of your caliber and it, always intrigues me because jiu-jitsu you sort of stay away from politics a bit and you explaining it before um shows your heart and what made that switch what made you want to dive into politics because right now you're um you're the candidate uh for uop for blacksland for blacksland that's correct yeah. yeah and what made you uh make that leap uh, into politics because essentially you could have stayed back and um, you know d- done the community. Yeah. Um, but what made you do that drive? Well, yeah, it's an interesting story. Again, um, it kind of goes back to my drive, my obsessive compulsiveness. 
Um, obviously, my business is a big part of what kind of triggered it off is when the they first shut everyone down, the first people to get shut down were gyms and fitness centres, martial yeah. arts schools. The last to open at the end of lockdown are us again. Now, prior to getting shut down, like uh, go back, you know, quite a few years, um, I was supposed to fight in UFC 110. I blew my shoulder out, ended up having shoulder surgery, had to be out for 12 months, put on a lot of weight. Um, and then I, just one day it was just like I looked my, at, at a photo and I'm like, holy crap, I'm fat. What's happened? <laughs> um, and <laughs> what, had, what had basically happened is I was eating the same way as I was when I was training yeah. but I wasn't training and I just ended up putting on weight. It, it never changed. It never occurred. I never really thought about nutrition. Nutrition was just fuel. Mm. I didn't eat particularly healthy. I ate like your pizza, your KFC along with – um, you know, and I had healthy meals and, and things like that as well, but I never really interested me. And then I got, I got fat and I'm like, well, and then I kind of kept training and I was training hard so I could hide it because I was a big guy, chest, shoulders, and it kind of, um, and I'm like, well, I'm training, I'm doing a lot of exercise. It's not like I've stopped exercising, but I'm still fat. So what's going on? Now, obviously, I'm not fighting as hard, training as hard as I was when I was a fighter, mm-hmm. but it just didn't make sense. And that's when I kind of dive into nutrition. I discovered intermittent fasting, which led me to low carb, which led me to keto, and now I play around with carnivore as well. But the the reason I bring this up is which is my diet. Um, definitely support the carnivore diet and carnivore candy store. Uh, Go to them and um, glad I could help with that promo piece. Send me some stuff, Carnival Candy Store. Um, So the the community I followed. So I I started um, reading a lot of studies on nutrition and reading articles and following um, these people on on podcasts. So listening to a lot of stuff. So I was diving deep into the nutrition sphere. And again. I mentioned the, the cancer side of thing as well. Yeah. Um, so I had these cancer patients. So I was looking into nutrition for cancer because, again, for some reason the medical community has no interest in nutrition and socializing and outdoor activity and all these things which really play a big part in our health. Yeah. They, they stop becoming health practitioners. They become pharmacological pharma practitioners. Yeah. They, they go, here, take this, take this, take that, you mm. know, um, I've heard stories where someone goes, I'm on carnivore and they go, oh, you're, you're going to kill yourself. You know, look yeah. how high your um, cholesterol is. And I'm just like, but I've lost 20 pounds. I'm in the best shape of my life. My illness has faded away. Um, why do you want me to stop? And he goes, look, just do it. And he goes, but if I stop eating this way, I'm going to put the, I'm the my, my illness is going to come back. And they go, don't worry, we'll give you pills for that. I mean, that's literally their answer. Yeah, there's um- – so. Yeah, the sickness industry versus the health, health industry. industry. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm in the health industry. I want to yeah. create health. So when COVID hit, obviously I got shut down. Now the, the community I was following, which my podcasts and stuff like that were in, into this and because they, they discovered very early on that the comorbidity were lifestyle-based illnesses. So they knew very early, like very early in, into COVID – we already knew that comorbidities, obesity, insulin resistance, and various other things played a large part 
in those people who were dying or have suffering severe injury from COVID. Mm. So suddenly I'm like, well, if we know this already, why are we shutting down fitness gyms? We should be an essential service. Why, sh- why are we not open? And then why, is, why are the chief health officers giving pharmacological advice? Why are they not giving health advice? Why are they not telling you to, to get vitamin D? Like vitamin D, low vitamin D levels correlates very, very highly to adverse reactions and deaths if you get COVID. Yeah. High vitamin D levels is very protective. So why are we not recommend it? It's cheap. Vitamin D you can get anywhere. Australia, we're even luckier. You literally just go outside and you'll produce vitamin D. Why are we locking people inside? Yeah. Why are we putting them in front of a TV where they're going to sit and put on weight and we're actually going to create the comorbidities which increase our risk? So I had all these kind of issues with what was going on. And again, the once I started diving into <laughs> to COVID, obsessive compulsive, <laughs> I had to find out everything. So I started looking into the statistics, the death rate, um, the treatments that were out there. And the more and more I found out, the more and more I just didn't understand why didn't we were doing sense. I even looked, I, I started looking into the vaccines. I'm not, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. My child is fully vaccinated during COVID. He, he was vaccinated. Um, Again, and that's another thing that kind of will got me into in the politics. He was born one week into the first lockdown. So I lost the ability for my family to share that with me. Mm. My mother was in Canberra, so she couldn't come up. My sister was in, in a different area. Our LGA, we were all locked down. We weren't allowed to, you could only go certain amount of places. You couldn't travel very far. So my family didn't see my child until it was almost four months, my sister and my, and my mother even longer, like yeah. six months, because once lockdowns got lifted, she was terrified by the fear that was being sold by the media. And, and she kept saying, oh, but COVID's in Sydney and everyone's dying. I'm like, no, mum, they're, they're not. Right? <laughs> it's just like a couple of people have got it. Oh, yeah, but, you know, I'm old and they keep telling me I'm a high risk. And so she didn't come for ages. Mm-hmm. Um, she ended up coming and so that affected her and then, the second lockdown when he's starting to socialise and needs to be around other children. we got not just lockdown, we got um, travel limits, not allowed to leave our LGA, curfews, all sorts of stuff. Um, and then during that time we had helicopters. Like I live near the airport and I'm used to planes and helicopters. Mm. I saw the increase. I could see the difference in what was happening during that lockdown. They're sending helicopters over Western Sydney. I saw the police cars on the road. Like Western Sydney compared to the rest, we just got hammered. Yeah. Um, so, you know. It's, and people, it, people tend to forget that. It's like it wasn't too long ago that there was – Western Sydney was completely shut down on complete lockdown. It was whilst, almost like a war zone. Yeah, whilst Bondi is there going to the beach and, and enjoying themselves. Not, it not, was, not just Bondi, it's like uh, yeah, northern ma- beaches and north Sydney and all that. They were operating like obviously still some restrictions, social distancing, um, masks not until later. Um, but, yeah, you're right. They were pretty much living life and, and we're here shut down. 
Yeah, with um, helicopters over their heads. There was videos of kids, um, you know, go showing the helicopters right over their heads. Well, there's one a.m. Like, like over um, Woolworths. We saw them landing in Auburn Park, like, yeah. and then um, it was it was a it, yeah, it was it was tough time for the area, crazy time. So you know, my business had been shut down. My son was affected. He my ability for him to share it with my family for his socializing. Um, and so many other things. And then the government offered like um, COVID grant. Oh, even before that. So what happened was before the first lockdown, I was getting ready to open up my UFC gym. So I had mm. all my finance pre-approved, everything ready to go. It was a big dive in, but I'm a risk taker. I, I don't mind, you know, putting things up. Um, but my, I, what I wanted to do is keep my home and everything separate to the business. So I had fine, uh, business loans and then my home separate. Yeah. Um, and then COVID hit. The gym was supposed to actually open before we actually got locked down, but because of reasons it didn't. So it got delayed. And then post-COVID, you know, once we started operating um, and then I've had – because I basically lost my original location. I found a better location. And then I got to the stage where I needed to – get money so I contacted the the loan providers for my pre-approved loans they're like sorry your industry's too great a risk we might get shut down and we've we've um all pre-approved loans have been cancelled what so now I had to go out and reapply um and now there's no way that they were going to loan me the same amount of money so I had to thankfully I had a massive mortgage I've just I had to remortgage my house to get enough money. And even then I still didn't have enough money to, to pay for it all. So I then had to go to these, these companies and I, I literally have about somewhere between half a dozen to 10 different loans to try and finance everything mm. with interest rates between four to 16%. Like it's ridiculous. It's like if I have to keep going this way, it, I don't know whether I can, if I'm going to lose everything or not. Mm. But I'm a fighter. I'm not going to give up and I'll keep, keep pushing on. So I finally get all these things in, in place and I, I open up my business and we get shut down <laughs> a week after I open. So now I've, I've got to fight with the finance companies not to, because I have no money to pay these loans now. So I had to fight with them to try and get, and the, it took a bit of effort, but they ended up being good and delaying my loans, but they don't stop the interest. Like I, I don't have to make repayments, but they keep charging me interest and then they chuck bank it on to the end of the loan. There's no, there's no stopping. Mm. It's just you're going to have to pay for it later. And then obviously the interest is making it higher so the repayments are getting bigger. Yeah. So I, I have, uh, you know, that in place. And then I, I applied for all the, the, the New South Wales government grants and all this stuff. And because I've got the two businesses, I put in finances for both the businesses to try and – and I got my, my grants and all that stuff. And then a couple of months after – COVID, we get um, opened up again. I get audited by the New South Wales government. I'm like, oh, well, I've done everything right. I have nothing to worry about. Why second, did you get audited? Just know. a random audit? Apparently, I have no idea. Yep, they didn't tell me why or anything. It's just I suddenly got audited. Um, so I'm like, okay, you know, I've done everything right. And they're like, oh, because my second business has no financial history, I don't get credit for it so mm. they're like well you've got to repay back half of it and I'm like so and it was actually more than half 
Um, but I managed the, the guy I was working with was actually pretty good and he, he brought it down. I think I had to pay back 150000 Now it's about 100000 I've got to pay back. So I've got on top of my, uh, you know, loans that I have, I now have extra debt that I've got to pay back to the government, which was supposed to help me. So I've gone, the government's announced the new COVID support loans, government guaranteed loans to help businesses that were impacted by COVID or started new businesses that started during COVID, which need assistance. So I applied for it. I got denied because I have no financial history. And I'm like, well, how are you supposed to if you're a new business? Mm. And they're concerned that if there are further COVID restrictions, I may get shut down again and I, it may impact my ability to repay the loans. And I'm like, but that's the whole reason we're getting these loans. Yeah. And they're like, so I, I'm still fighting for that at the moment because all, and this is what's crazy. I'm already servicing the loans. All I'm trying to do is combine it into a single loan with a lower interest rate to make repayments easier. And the, yeah. the, the, the COVID grant support loan gives you a 12 month payment holiday. So that mm. gives my business 12 months time to, to build up to a point. So it's easy to pay off the loans, mm. but they don't consider any of that. They've just gone, we want to, we want six months of data of financial data. And I'm like, I may not make that. Mm. Um, and it's, and it's not because I can't, it's just because where I am at and the, what I've had to do to get that point has been really difficult. So and, and then on top of that, my partner also lost her job because um, the vaccine mandates. And, and again, it's not because she's in a vaccine mandated business or industry. It's because the, the company she works for doesn't have any requirements, but they outsource, they work for other, they do events and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah. all the places, the event centers that bring them in require double vaccination certificate. Yeah. And well, you know, we're trying to have another baby. And so I didn't feel it was worth the risk for her to be vaccinated. Yeah. Um, and we shouldn't have had to be, but she lost her job. So more financial stress. So there's, I got impacted in so many different ways. And with my gym as well, I talked to a lot of people and there's a lot of people in my community who have been impacted the same way. And, you know, I've been very vocal and maybe that's why I got audited. I know that's why I got um, numerous police visits when we reopened um, in October because there were people reporting um, the gym and me as an anti-vaxxer and I'm like, no, I'm pro-freedom, I'm anti-mandate, I'm pro-bodily autonomy, um, which is not anti-vax because, as I said, my child got, yeah. has been vaccinated during – I have all my vaccines. I just don't have this particular one. I should be able to choose that though. And now it's amazing that now the narrative is changing. But back then it was really, really, really harsh. I mean, me, uh, I was um, I was doing this podcast. I was uh, I had speakers on um, and I had these speakers that – uh, were getting shut down from other platforms yep. and suddenly next minute I'm banned on Facebook for 47 years they've given me a oh. ban of 47 years thankfully I haven't been I've been um, suspended several times on Facebook but I've managed to to, to get back on each time so <laughs> yeah um, yeah but <laughs> so so the, obviously there was a lot of different things you know police coming to my business um, mm. getting shut down the government, loans and subsidies, um, my partner, my son, 
there was a lot of reasons why I should do what I'm doing, you know. And I'm, I'm, as I said, I was very vocal, probably why a lot of this is happening to me. Um, but I'm not a complainer. Yeah. I do. I'm a doer. Mm. And I just went, I don't want people to think of me as just a complainer. So you know what? I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to, I'm going to get into the politics. I'm going to find a party that I believe can get us out of this Mm. Um, situation. So I, I looked at a lot of different parties. I looked at um, obviously United Australia Party, who I, I ended up going with. I looked at Australia One, who never actually registered a political um, party. I looked at One Nation, Liberal Democrats, and, you know, some of them were fantastic, like Lib Dems have some fantastic policies and stuff. But what drew me to United Australia was for, first of all, Craig Kelly's um, member for Hughes, which is where my business is based. So mm. Hughes, Fowler, and then I live in Blacksland and that's the one yeah. I'm in. So I'm, you know, it's my community. Um, I'd already seen for years um, through social media, boosted posts, Craig's content coming through. Now, I always agreed with a lot of what he was saying but I had this disconnect between what he was saying and the Liberal Party that he belonged to. Yeah. I'm like, this is great. You're saying this, but are you saying it because you believe it or are you just trying to get votes because your party's not saying the same thing? Mm. They're almost opposite. So I kept kind of, I kept watching him because as I said, I liked what he was saying and, but I, I couldn't, I mean, he wasn't in my electorate, so I couldn't vote for him directly, but I was always just kind of interested in seeing what's going on. And when the COVID stuff hit and he ended up separating from um, the Liberal Party because I'm guessing he felt that same disconnect. He didn't feel like what his position, their position um, merged. And then when he joined the United Australia Party and they made him um, the leader, I just went, I straight away went and joined up as a member. Mm -hmm. Um, At this point, I hadn't decided to be a candidate but I kind of was looking at it and go, oh, it's not, it's not really something I want to do. And then it just took a couple of months of just getting hammered. Like um, the old saying is when a child has a hammer, everything's a nail. Yeah. The government only had a hammer. I was the nail and I had enough of that. I wanted to be the hammer. So I applied to um, United Australia Party because I like their, um, their policies. I like their position. I trusted Craig because I felt he was being genuine to who he was before the pandemic hit. He didn't change his policies. He didn't swing to try and get vote. He, he kept honest with it. And with Clive, Clive has the, the financial backing to give us the opportunity. The problem with too many of the other parties is they don't have what they need behind them to really push and make it happen. I mean, we've got candidates in nearly every single seat in Australia. So we can win an election and we can form government because we have, if we win enough seats. Yeah. Too many of the, the uh, I don't want to call them minors because they're not minors, they're alternate parties. They're not independents, they're alternate parties. They can win seats and then they, they can still affect parliament. If they get enough seats, they can control votes and um, affect policy, but they can never form government. Mm. Um, I mean, maybe if they... Um, created a coalition possibly, but UAP can. And I believe they have, the numbers. I, I, they have the numbers and I believe they will because as you said, the community is changing. They're seeing what's going on. I'm talking to the community. I, I have experienced 
what my community, so I understand what they're going through because I'm still going through it. I, I'm not. I'm not out the other side. I'm still fighting my way through, and that's why, like, I'm running two businesses. I'm raising a child, and I'm still taking on this. I've just taken yeah. on a bigger workload, and and this. I'm, I'm going to link it back to the start of the story when I started MMA. So it was the same thing when I was doing MMA. I was working a full-time job. I was doing part-time security. I was teaching at my own academy, um, trying to have a social life, but I made it work because I wanted it to. Um, back then, there was no such thing as MMA gyms. I had to go – I had um, a, a wrestling membership at um, Sydney Olympic Park. I had a wrestling membership at Hornsby. It was a PCYC membership. I had a boxing membership at another PCYC. I had uh, a kickboxing uh, membership in Manly, close to where I live. I had a kickboxing me- membership in Parramatta, close to where I worked. Um, I had a gym membership. I had probably half a dozen different memberships. And I was, and people's like, "How could you afford that?" I go, "I found a way. I just did without something that wasn't necessary. Um, I made it work." And I take that. And and if it weren't for that fighting and that mindset like as I said at some point I was so deep in debt and I never thought I'd get out but I fought my way out so that's why I was willing to 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 take on these loans that normally you know you'd go oh I don't know if I want to put put that I don't care because I know I can get through anything and it's the same with this upcoming election I know I can get through anything and I I have the drive to succeed I have the same experience of my community so I can relate and hopefully they can see that and we'll understand I'm not – I don't want to do this. I really don't want to win the election to be a politician. I want to win the election because I want change. And the great thing is the people I've met, um, the other candidates that I've met are the same. They don't want to be polit- – I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a couple of people that uh, uh, enjoy and are driven by politics and you need them. In the, you need them. Without them – um, it's going to be very hard to run. It's the same thing. People go, oh, you know, you shouldn't trust a lawyer. It's like, well, you need lawyers. They, they have the information. You need some of those guys on the team. The beauty of our team is we have people, we have lawyers, we have politicians, we have IT specialists, we have finance people, we have doctors, we have nurses, we have <laughs> fitness industry people. Um, we, are, we are real people from our community. We are for the people, by the people. And that's, and that's what it's all about, um, kind of how I, I look at it. And uh, you're from originally from Canberra. What, what were yes. your thoughts on the Canberra protest? Look, I think it was fantastic. It was great to see more and more people um, coming on board and really standing up. But the, the great thing about the Canberra protest is it brought people from a lot of other states together. Yeah. We've already had some absolutely massive protests Um were you surprised by the size of it? I was surprised. I was like, I did not think that there was that many people that would go to Canberra. I don't uh, yeah, think they've I, honestly, had that many I people didn't, I there. I didn't think, well, yeah, Canberra's only 600,000 people. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you, I didn't expect those sort of numbers. I'd seen the massive numbers in Melbourne. Like they've been some absolutely huge. Yeah. I saw at some points we had absolutely massive um, Sydney Numbers and I think yeah, which Channel again, Nine uh, accused me of organising absolutely didn't, but yeah, <laughs> and they they really but the, they didn't tell the story. 
Yeah, Again, no. same thing, extreme right-wingers, anti-vaxxers, yeah. conspiracy theories. No, these were real, real people from our community who aren't happy with what's going on. And they – look, I have to admit um, the, the, the Melbourne people didn't give up. They kept fighting through it, um, getting shot at with rubber bullets and all sorts of stuff, police brutality. They, they never gave up. Um, Sydney got, I think, hammered a little bit and they got uh, frightened by the – the police present presence for a little while there. I mean, a big part of it was, again, the campaign that they waged on Western Sydney. So I think a large part proportion of the protesters came from Western Sydney. That's why they locked us down. That's why they gave us curfews. That's why they stopped us from leaving our LGAs because Western Sydney is a community. It's not just people and houses. It's a massive community and – the way you break a community is you separate each other and that's what they did with these these policies and and I think it, it did um, break the, the cause for a little while but we managed to regroup and, and come back strong and now we're coming back uh, stronger and, and it was great to see that carried on into the Canberra protest and again it didn't get anywhere near the, the recognition that it deserved in the mainstream media. They still kind of selling it. They're a little bit fairer this time because I think the narrative's changing and they can't hide it. Mm. Um, and I think you need we need to be careful because some of the news sources are now starting to swing their narrative. We still have to remember what they did. Exactly. And it's the same with the politicians. They're like easing restrictions, you know, to make you feel better. What they do is they take everything away. Then they give you back less than they took away. Then they take it away again. Then they give you less than they gave back last time. And they take it away and it's a constant process to eventually you've got no rights and your freedoms are all gone and you've given it away because you haven't seen it coming. Um, and, and this is what they're doing. If you even look at all the states that are easing restrictions have all extended their um, state of emergency. If we're easing restrictions, why are we extending our state of emergency? Shouldn't we – if we're easing, that means things are getting better. Should we not just end out? No, because they don't want to give up control. Yeah, They're easing things as we ease into an election. And I yeah. guarantee if they win, they're going to come back and, and more. I couldn't agree more. I think, um, I think we need to remember what has just happened coming into election. We can't, you know, be yeah, um, sidelined by – these gifts and thinking, you know, that it's just calm because and, calm, and there's I, always a wave, you know. These are, these are not gifts. The these, these are our rights. We deserve them. Yes. And again, too many people go, thank you. Oh, that's so good. They've, you know, given. No. Mm. They're giving back what is ours. It's like I take, a child takes a toy off, you know, oh, it's my toy, it's my toy. All right, you can borrow it again. You can borrow my toy now. You can play with it, but I'm taking it back when you're finished. You've, I've taken your toy. I'm giving it back to you, but I'm going to keep it. And that's what they're doing. That's what these things are. They're, they've taken our freedom. They're giving it back to let us play with it, but they're going to keep it at the end if we don't stop them. Yeah. I agree. And um, I, I know you've got a meeting to, to get yeah. to, and um, I don't want keep to you, keep you any longer. I just want to um, quickly – ask you um what what's your what's your top five fighters of all time 
Oh, look, um, it's, um, I mean, there's a lot of great fighters out there. I mean, I'm sure it's the same as most um, top lists. Um, Anderson Silva, absolutely loved Anderson during his prime. Um, George Saint-Pierre. Fantastic. Fido Emelianenko. Yes. Um, I wish he ever fought in the UFC once. It would have been amazing, but I yeah. Know. Uh, John Jones, even though I know he's a head case, he, he, he's, he's an absolutely um, amazing um, athlete. Uh, the last one's a little harder. I mean, there's um, Mighty Mouse who was just so dominant and broke so many records. And because he left and to go to one, I think he slipped the mind of just how dominant he was um, during his run. Uh, and it's a tough one. I love I love Khabib. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think, I mean, he's undefeated. He left left undefeated. Um, I love his style. His his constant pressure. He never gives up. He just pushes, 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 and he forces his game. <clears throat> the only issue I have with Khabib is, I think he left too early. I think I mean he had a great legacy, but he got in there, defended once or twice. Had some great performances. I mean, obviously undefeated, but a, a lot of those fighters where he was undefeated weren't great fighters. Like he was at that point where I really think he could have made a real stamp on on what he's done. Like, don't get me wrong. He, he, he's absolutely amazing. And again, I find it hard to not put him in mm. that top five yeah. because I'm such a big fan. That's where I struggle with. I, I'm a massive fan of how he fights. Mm. But it's not about how he fights. It's the achievements, the, the, the defences, the, the guys that change weight divisions and win belts in, in different divisions, the, the guys that fight defence after defence, you know, 11 defences or, or whatever it was. Um, he just doesn't have that extra edge to, to making him, him an all-time. And, and what I what is going to happen, I was going to say what I worry, and I'm like, no, it will happen. There are going to be fighters that come after him who achieve that and then more. And mm. so, and I, I really think he could have been the all-time great if he just, I mean, another half a dozen fights or so, maybe a little bit more, maybe go up a weight division, pick up a belt there. He could really cement his his place. I mean, he'll always have a place in history. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely amazing. But looking at the greatest of the great, mm. it's tough not because of his skills but his achievements. Um, I kind of hope um, – I, um, I really hope Oliveira keeps winning because I think if he loses, then Khabib's like, oh. Done. Yeah. Yeah, and I look. I know he says he's done, but I think if if um, Oliveira, you know, beats Gaethje, and then is it Makachev? I think um, keeps going. Yeah, if he beats him, and then he wins a couple more, Khabib's got to sit back and go. Maybe I left too early because he was going to come back if Connor had had won. That was sort of the the play around that was I know, happening. I know at, the at time. one point he was considering if GSP came back and then GSP said he would for a fight and then I think like, they're doing no. a grappling match. Oh, okay. Yeah, apparently they a grappling match between those two are, oh. they're saying are in the works. That so. that I would watch. That would be interesting. Oh, I mean, look, honestly most um, MMA grapplers 
like super dominant in um, the cage, but when it gets in onto the mat, it's a different it's a different game. Yeah, like Cowboy Cerrone. Sort um, of. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know Habib has um, trained in, in the the Danaher Dungeon. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't as he wasn't dominant the way he is in the MMA cage. Oh, he trained in there. I know GSP trains there. Oh, GSP Khabib. does. He went in there. I've yeah. heard it was like I think it's just a single, uh, maybe one or two sessions or something. Gotcha, He's done gotcha, some work there, gotcha. yeah, and it wasn't as dominant as he is in MMA. Ah, so, interesting. Um, Spices and things up. As you said, GSP trains with them. He yeah. trains in the Danaher system. Again, I don't know how good the GSP is in that system again. And it then creates the interesting clash of they're both top players. Yeah. So this is one of the things that I I think um, too many fighters have made the mistake with fighting Khabib. And they keep doing what Khabib is good at countering. Mm. Like they, they work sprawl and ball, they work their striking, they work on getting back up to their feet. Mm. That's what he's good at stopping. And I was saying Gaethje's only game plan that he's going to threaten Khabib is if he goes back to his roots because Gaethje's a great wrestler. He, when he was in the um, W E uh, W I can't remember what it's just the the um, WFA I think it was before he came to the UFC he was used to wrestle used to do big slams ground and pound crush people on the ground. Um, and he switched to a more exciting style. Now, great for the fans, turned into the uh, his striking, went through the roof, and he used his wrestling to defend. The problem is that's not going to work against Khabib, and it didn't. Yeah. I really feel he could have created a greater threat. I don't know how much of a greater threat, but I think he would have been a greater threat is if instead of defending takedowns, he, went for it. he initiated takedowns. I think if he was striking in and then coming underneath and trying to take him down, man. And, the, and I think that's what that's what needed to happen. Yeah. Um, so And yeah. he got and then he got caught in a triangle. What a way for Kaviv to um, sort of finish it off. Yeah, well, but still but, but it was still from the mount though. Like yeah, he switched yeah. it and because he tried that um, triangle armbar, um, which is one of my moves, and I could have fixed it so he would have won in the first round. But I'm, <laughs> um, remember, it's armbars. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll finish it. I'll finish, I've already. I gave you the top five, which is an extremely tough one to hit. But yeah, but, as, but sorry, before you switch yeah, to that, yeah. the, the point I was just going to make is they're both top players. So whoever puts the other one on their back first is probably going to win. Beautiful. Uh, Elvis, do you want to let them know where they can find you? Um, for for uh, everyone, I haven't had um, political figures in ever since I interviewed Robert Malone. Um, you know, uh, had a lot of requests. Um, particular parties that you've mentioned have reached out a lot and I've sort of stayed away from the politics as much as I can. But um, yeah, when... Lucky, lucky when, I've got an interesting backstory, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've got a backstory that I, I truly respect and you've done achievements that I truly respect, not not only as um, achievements in, in itself, but achievements that build incredible character. And that's the 
the main reason that, you know, like I would, I would back you. And um, I think you'll do great in your community if you, you know, end up winning, um, which uh, I hope that you do. And uh, just let them know where they can find you and uh, when the when the dates when the dates are. It's it's March. It's coming up. Is it uh, the election? Yeah, May. So May. It, it's, yeah. Um, originally they were saying May twenty one, but okay. I think it's more likely going to be May fourteenth, which is being floated at the moment. Um, for those people that know me will know I genuinely want to help. Yeah. I mean everything I've done. Um, over the years is about helping people. I, I really, I get great joy in, in, in seeing people help. Like I have affiliates. I don't charge an affiliate fee for any of my old students. I give them business and um, teaching advice and all that sort of because I just want to see them succeed. You know, it, you, you, you can reach higher, higher levels of success by helping those up underneath you than standing on top of them. And that's, that's kind of how I do things. I've always wanted to help um, my, you know, not just my friends and family, but my community. And I'm hoping that the people of Blackland, my electorate can see that. And again, very similar to the other candidates here. I'm easy to find. You literally just have to type Elvis UFC and you can, I will pop up. Um, I've got Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, I've got all those platforms. Um, you can look up me through UAP Blacksland. I've got a, a UAP Blacksland Facebook page. Um, I can be contacted at, um, UA, at UAP Blacksland at unitedaustraliaparty.org.au. Um, as I said, very easy. You can look up King's Academy. You, you can find me through there. I'm probably one of the easiest um, candidates to find just because my name is so unique and probably the reason I got into fighting because as a kid <laughs> I was picked on a lot. So, um, and thankfully I'm good at fighting, not just, uh, no, I don't mean just physically, but yeah. I have a fighting spirit because I'm going to, I know I'm going to need this for the election. Yeah. Um, and most importantly, before I finish off, I always want to say it's good to be the king. Ah, I love it. I love it. Elvis, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you.